I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. I'm going to put this right here. We'll get to that later. Hey everybody, hope you're doing well. I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab that. We are in the Gospel of John, John chapter 15. Uh, and while you're looking there, where we've been for the last six weeks is we have been looking at the seven I am statements of Jesus from the Gospel of John. Last week, Pastor Marcel led us in what is perhaps the most commonly used one, the, the one that is the most familiar to us when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And uh, if you haven't had a chance to uh, watch that, I want to encourage you to go back, take a look. You did an uh, incredible job highlighting what that means for us in our lives. And this week, we have the opportunity to look at the seventh and final one where Jesus says, I am the true vine. Now, the reason why we're in this series is because we want every person who comes into contact with this word to behold Jesus for who he truly is. See, it's one thing for us to know about Jesus and to hear the stories of what he has done, but it's another thing entirely for us to know Jesus for who he truly is. You know, you know if, if you have a spouse or kids or a really close friend, you know that what makes that relationship special isn't that you simply know about those people, you know about your spouse or your kids or your, or your close family member or your, your friend, but it's that you know them and they know you and on account of that you, you cherish the relationship and you love them desperately and in the same way, what really affects our relationship with Jesus is that we know him. You know, Time Magazine and the New York Times and the Washington Journal and many other publications have all said that Jesus is the most influential person to have ever lived on the face of the earth. And yet I think we can all agree that not everyone is worshiping him. So they know his teaching, they know his miracles, they know the things that he has done, they know what scripture says about Jesus, and yet they don't, they don't know Jesus. They just know about Jesus. And so over the course of the last two months, my prayer for you and for everyone who's listening or who comes into contact with this message or, or with these passages of scripture is that you would behold Jesus for who he truly is. And on account of that, that you would fall down and you would worship him, that you would get off that fence to simply think that, that Jesus is some sort of great moralistic teacher. He didn't give us that kind of response. We can't have that response with Jesus with the things that he says. He's either who he says he is or he is a complete nutcase, a crazy person, and we have to make our choice. And so my, my hope and my prayer for you is that you see Jesus for who he truly is. So John chapter 15, but before we dive into that passage, let me just lay out the context for you. We know that Jesus is less than 24 hours away from being arrested, tried, kangaroo courted, uh, being laid out before a courtroom, and there he is given the 40 lashes minus one. 40 lashes is a death sentence, and then he is forced to carry his cross all the way up to the land called Golgotha, the land of the skull, and there he will stretch out his hands, and he will be crucified. He will be murdered, even though he hasn't done anything wrong at all. Jesus knows that he's only 24 hours away from those sequence of events 
starting, and yet he still says what he says right here. I'm looking forward to diving into this. John chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Why is this dinosaur here? I don't know. We'll get to it. 15 verse 1, I am the true vine, Jesus says, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. He says again, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. All right, right off the bat, I want you to see that Jesus actually makes two I am statements in the first five verses. If your Bibles are open, look at verse five, and there he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And in just a bit, we're going to see that on account of Jesus being the vine, there are certain expectations that we can have for what Jesus is going to do in our life. And we're going to get to that. But in verse one, you see that Jesus says it a little bit differently, doesn't he? He says, I am the what? The true vine. And my concern is because we uh, have been raised up, or most of us live in the Fraser Valley in the year 2020, and we don't live in the region of Judea over 2,000 years ago, and most of us aren't Jews, then we've probably just missed the sensational message that Jesus has just delivered to the Jewish people right in that first verse. And so I want to kind of lay out the context here for you. See, in the Old Testament, the most common description of God's relationship uh, with the people of Israel was this idea of the gardener or the vine dresser and the vine. God being the gardener, the people of Israel being the vine. And even though we might have this idea of, you know, when we think vine, we think all these positive images, right? We think of fruit and growth and vitality and life and all those kinds of things. And yet what we see in scripture is every single time, without fail, every time the concept of vine shows up in the Old Testament, it was always a declaration of judgment, It was always a very negative story about how the people of Israel, they've broken their covenant with God, they haven't kept up to their end of the bargain, and on account of that, God's wrath, his judgment, is coming. And so we know from this that the people of Israel have kind of been conditioned to have a visceral negative response every single time they hear the word vine. All right, they hear vine, they cringe, they go, oh, something bad is about to happen. Perhaps uh, some of you have heard of the Pavlov experiment. This is where a scientist, Pavlov, he had a dog and uh, he conducted an experiment where he would ring a bell and then he would give his dog a doggy treat. Some time would go on, then he would ring a bell and he would give his dog a doggy treat. And he would do this dozens upon dozens of times over days and weeks and months. And what he started to recognize is that every time he rang the bell, even before the the doggy treat could even be seen or smelled by this dog, the dog would begin to salivate. He was conditioned to have a particular response based on the ringing of the bell. Uh, perhaps you have this, if you love pizza, you could be like driving on the road and you pass your, your favorite pizza joint, like, 
I don't know, Pizza Hut or Domino's or Boston Pizza, whatever your favorite is, and you get that waff of pizza coming in, and instantly what happens? You begin to salivate and you begin to hunger for pizza. I have a similar negative response to ginger ale. Ginger ale was always the sickness drink in my house, and because that's the case, if someone ever offered me ginger ale while I'm healthy, I kind of was like, I, I don't want that. I'm almost like, I might get sick if I drink it, but when I'm sick, it's the first thing that I want. I have this kind of association. I'm conditioned to view ginger ale in a particular way. Well, in the same way, the people of Israel, they hear vine and they think judgment. Let me just give you a, a couple of examples of this in Scripture. The first in Psalm chapter 80, verse 8, where we see this is King David. He's talking about what God has done with the people of Israel. And he said, you brought a vine out from Egypt. That's the people of Israel. They're the vine. They were enslaved in Egypt. He brings them out of Egypt and into a promised land. Watch over this vine, David says. The root of your right hand has planted. The son you have raised up for yourself. He calls Israel his son. Really interesting language. And yet... We also know that every time the word vine is used, a message of judgment is coming. And so we look forward to verse 14. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, Lord, your people perish. Let me give you another example. This is coming from Isaiah chapter 5. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. So, so far, so good, right? But you might have noticed, delighted. Past tense. What's happening here? What's the context? Let's look back a couple of verses. Verses 4 through 6. What more could I have done for my vineyard, says God? This is God kind of like pleading with Israel. What more could I have done for you that I've not done for you already? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall. It will be trampled and I will make it a barren wasteland. Hmm. See, in, in, in both instances, Israel is described as a corrupt vine, not producing a healthy yield of good grapes. And on account of that, God's judgment is coming on account of their foolishness, their brokenness, their rebellion, how, how they haven't kept up to their end of the covenant. And so again, Israel always, when they think vine, they, they kind of have this negative response. But here's Jesus, right off in verse 1. And he says, I am the what? The true vine. I am the true vine. And, and we have to see here that there is kind of two things that are happening in this verse. There's, all, there's a great offense that Jesus is giving, but also an incredible grace the, the offense is that Jesus is saying, I am everything that you are unable to be, and I've done everything that you are unable to do. I am the true vine in the way that you are not. I am the true son in the way that you are not. You have fallen short of the standard. I have exceeded the standard in every way. And so the people who are listening to this, the Jews who are listening, this is a great offense. But also, when we look closely, 
we see that it's also an incredible grace because Jesus is not only saying, um, I am doing everything that you could not do and I am being everything that you could not be. He's also saying that on account of my righteousness, my perfection, me being the one true son, I'm going to grant and credit to you the same perfection that lives in me. So every time that the heavenly father looks at you, he will see the perfection of his son Jesus. See, for that reason, there's a great offense here, but there's also a grace. It's a slap in the face, but it's a kiss on the cheek. Both of those things are happening at exactly the same time. And we're still in verse 1. All right, let's keep going. So here's what it means for you and me today. There's three expectations that we can have on account of Jesus being the true vine. So when Jesus says, I am the true vine, here are the things that you can expect. The first thing that I put in your note sheet is this. You can expect his pruning. Thought something else would be there, didn't you? You might be thinking to yourself, pruning. I I know what pruning is, and it's never a a thing that I associate with positively. Even though it produces good fruit, you know that you're, you're cutting things, right? You're actually hurting the tree temporarily, hurting the vine temporarily so that it can bear more fruit. And we don't really like that idea in our mind that that we can expect pruning from God. And yet that's what he says. Look again at verses 1 and 2. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes. Why? So that it can be even more fruitful. So Jesus is saying two things here. Uh, The first one is is kind of a a hard lesson, and the second one is a hard lesson. (laughs) All right, so here's the first thing that he says. The first hard truth that Jesus gives here is that to be a Christian— is to bear fruit. To be a Christian is to bear fruit. That's the litmus test, right? If there is no fruit, then there is no genuine faith. That's what Jesus says. In fact, he goes on to say, he says that if there is no fruit, then what happens? You get cut off, right? And so we're we're about to reveal, what Jesus is about to reveal to us is that fruit reveals genuineness of faith and not vice versa. That's really important for us to understand that it's not that we need to produce fruit on our own so that we can be in the relationship with God, but that if we have genuine faith, that it will automatically be a byproduct for us to have good fruit. Right? So we're getting there. Just hang on to that for a second. But here's the second thing he says. He says that the vines which produce fruit, he prunes. And why does he do that? He says, so that it can produce more fruit, right? And now we we might need to define what it means for us to produce fruit. We know that it's not simply some sort of external moralistic fruit that's based on us kind of doing everything we can in our own strength. Otherwise, we'd be no better than the Pharisees. That's what the Pharisees are saying. So it's not that, but what is it? I think the most helpful passage of scripture that highlights what Jesus is saying here is from the book of Galatians chapter 5. Let's take a look at this. A very familiar passage of scripture to Christians. You've probably seen this on walls and on coffee cups and on t-shirts and on the back of cars. We see this all over the place where the Apostle Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. 
And he also says on, on the back end of that, he says, apart from this, there is no law. Against such things, there is no law. What, what is he saying there? What, what does that mean? Right? And so what we see here in this passage is that there's nine attributes, but there's only one fruit. There's not nine fruit, there's, there's only one fruit, and these are the attributes of it. And what that means is, um, you, we have to recognize that we can't just have bits and pieces of this. We can't have a, a joy-filled life, but also be a jerk. We, we can't be filled with love, but at exactly the same time be unfaithful to our spouse or, or in our relationships with other people. It's not that we have bits and pieces of this, but that all of these fruit are growing together as we abide in Christ. They're all happening in sequence. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we're all still growing in these areas, aren't we? My, my hope is that there wasn't any person when we went through that list of nine attributes just said, I'm doing awesome in this area, Justin. I'm just nailing it. Thanks so much for the encouragement, brother. I'm done with all this. No, but that we would say, you know, I, I, I'm not where I used to be, but I'm also not where I want to be either. That I, I still have room to grow. That, that these are things that, that are constantly growing in my life. We, we call this the doctrine of sanctification that we can look back on our life for those of us who have been following Jesus, especially for some time. Let's just say you've been following Jesus for 20 years. You can look back 10 years ago and you can say, I have grown in sanctification. I've grown in the fruit of the Spirit. I can see how God has taken hold of my life and he is changing me from the inside out. I'm not where I was even 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 19 years ago or 19 and a half years ago, that day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, I am growing in progressive sanctification. I am growing in Christ-likeness. And, and let, me just, let me just encourage you for a moment. For some reason, uh, a lot of us, we perpetuate this idea that once we step over the line to follow Jesus, uh, everything in our life is just supposed to get better. Right? God, God takes care of all the problems and we're just filled with happiness and, and all the external problems around us begin to disappear. But then unfortunately, the school of hard knocks teaches us that, it, that it's completely craziness. But because we've built up in our mind this idea that once we follow Jesus, everything's going to be okay, we don't have any category for doubt. We don't have any category for pain. We don't have any category for difficulty. We don't have any categories for death. And on account of that, we begin to lose faith in the faithful God on account of something he never actually said. And it leaves us dry and embittered and wondering, why did I sign up for this? And yet what scripture highlights to us is that it's not that God takes the valleys out of our life. It's that he enters into the valley with us. You know, as a pastor, I've had the opportunity to walk with a lot of Christians, many of which much older than I am and who have followed Jesus for a long time. And one of the stories I hear repeatedly is some of the best seasons of pruning in their life have happened when they have been in those valleys. Now, they'll tell you, I don't want to experience it again. It's not like I want to go back to those things. It's not like I want another round of that. But by the same token, they look back through the rearview mirror and they can see, I can totally see the hand of God in that. And I grew in my faith on account of that. It brought me down to my knees. And now my strength in Christ is so much stronger on account of those experiences. 
And so what we see in all of this is God pruning us is a kindness. It is a grace. It's something that we never want to experience, but on the back end, we're so, so grateful for it. And then we look at the next thing that he says. This is John chapter 15, verse 3. Verse 3 says this. He looks to the disciples and he says, You are already clean, circle, highlight, underline, because of the word that I have spoken to you. What? what what's Jesus saying here? By the way, the, the word prune in verse 2 and the word clean in verse 3, it's the same Greek word. So he's saying, like, you, you need to be pruned, right? If you abide in me, you will be pruned. I'll prune you so you can produce more fruit. And then he looks at the disciples and he says, you're already clean. Why? On account of the word that I have shared with you about who I am. And what have we been learning about Jesus and who he is? He says, I am the bread of life, right? I am the light of the world. I am the sheep gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. He's highlighting who he is in his essence. And Jesus is saying, on account of me sharing with you who I am and you believing in my testimony and who I am, you're already clean. Do you see how radical of a statement this is? Before you have done anything at all, Jesus says, on account of my testimony and who I am, if you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, you are already clean. No other religion talks this way. Jesus says the reason you're clean isn't because you can pull up your own bootstraps and clean yourself up and, and you're kind of smarter than the average bear. You know, you can, you're sharper than the average tool in the shed. Where do these analogies come from? He said because it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with any of those things. It is on account of what Christ has done for you that you are set free. It's on account of who Jesus is and you believing in who he is that you can be clean. That's what Jesus is highlighting to the disciples here. And, and let me really encourage you for a second. Like I said to you already, we're 24 hours away from the beginning of Jesus' crucifixion. Do you know what happens to these disciples, the people that Jesus is talking to in this context in verse 3? The same disciples 24 hours later when G the Roman court, uh, court all comes together, when these centurion soldiers come before Jesus, do you, know, do you know what the disciples do? They flee. They run off. And Peter, Rocky, the rock of the church, he says, Jesus, even if everyone else falls away, I will never abandon you. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, even before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says to the Lord of the universe, never, I would never do that to you. Everyone else might fall away, but I would die for you, Jesus. And then over the course of maybe four to six hours, he denies his Lord and Savior three times. And Jesus still, in this context, he says, on account of my testimony, you believing in my testimony, you are already clean. You're not clean yourself, I'm clean. And when I give my cleanliness to you, and when God the Father looks at you, he sees the perfection of Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so here's the second expectation that you can have if Jesus is the true vine. If he's your true vine, you can expect his presence. Expect his presence. Look at verse 4. It says this, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. 
you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 6, if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that's thrown away and withers and such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my word remains in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. See, one of the great mysteries of the gospel is this idea of abiding in Jesus, of remaining in Jesus, of Christ inhabiting you. What does that look like? What is Jesus highlighting here? That, that you are here because of Christ's calling in your life, that he is the one who has brought you to himself, and when you remain in Christ, when you're connected to the source of life, you will produce good fruit on account of your connection to Jesus. And that God is the one who is doing this good work in you. That I have union with Christ. That Christ delights in me. That he loves me. That he favors me. That he, he cares for me. And he wants a relationship with me. So that's, that's the way that God sees you. It's the way he sees me. That's how desperately he loves his people. See, here's something that, that you have to recognize about being a follower of Jesus. I can tell you that there are many people that they're convinced they have, to, they have to clean themselves up before they can come to Jesus. They have to do all those things to say, like, God, I'm not there yet. There's a couple things that I have to take care of before I can come to Jesus. I've encountered so many people who they're afraid to come back to church. They're afraid to step over that line to follow Jesus because they need to just clean up their act first. There's a couple things that they need to take care of. And do you know what scripture says? Scripture says the opposite thing. He doesn't ask you to clean yourself up so that you can come to him. He says, come to me so that I can clean you up. Do you see the difference? And so we need a radical reorienting of the way that we think about sin and brokenness in our life. That the reason why you need Jesus is because you can't do it yourself. That's where Jesus started. When he says, I am the true vine, he's saying, I am being everything that you've been unable to be. You will never able, be able to be this. You'll never be able to reach that standard. Stop trying. Come to me, abide in me, and I will produce the good fruit in you. It's a radical reorienting of the way that we view our relationship with Jesus. You know, there, there once was a man uh, who owned an orchard, and he had hundreds of acres of apple trees. And he took one of his trees, and he took off all the fruit, and he had little cardboard cutouts of pictures of apples, and he nailed them to the tree. Now, this orchard was right next to a highway, and to the naked eye, as people were driving by, none of them would have been able to know that one of these trees is unlike the others. While every other tree was producing fruit that was not only pleasing to the eye, but good for food and for physical nourishment, there was one tree that even though it might be pleasing to the eye from a distance, it was nothing more than apple nailing on a tree, cardboard cutouts, not good for nourishment, not good for growth. And I wonder if maybe, just maybe, some of our lives, for those of us who are watching, and the way that we have our relationship with Jesus is nothing more than apple nailing on a tree. That we're not abiding in Jesus. 
We just have enough history in church to know what to say. We know the right answers. We, we know the lingo that we can use in order to reveal to everyone else, I, I got it. It's all taken care of. It, it's okay. And you might have incredible gifts. You might have incredible skills. And so people look at you and they almost want to emulate you and say, wow, look at his relationship with Jesus. Look at how she is devoted to Jesus. But you know in your heart of heart that it's nothing more than apple nailing on a tree. That you've not been abiding in Jesus. You haven't been connected to the source of life. You have been relying on spiritual nourishment from the past in order to feed you today. And on account of that, your relationship with Jesus is beginning to wither. So what Jesus says is, if, if I am the true vine, you can expect my presence. And it doesn't go away. It's, it's not a one-time thing and then you move on with your life. You can expect his daily presence, his constant presence. So as a recap, on account of Jesus being the true vine, we can expect pruning, which we identified that that is a kindness, it is a grace from God. We can also expect his presence, his daily presence, his constant presence. But also, number three, on account of Jesus being the true vine, we can also expect his power. We can expect his power. Look at verse 8 with me, if your Bibles are still open. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. And as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now, remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands, and I remain in his love. And so I think a lot of times we review this passage exactly the wrong way. We say, all right, I, I need to produce good fruit in my life. I need to do a series of things in order to prove a right relationship with God. And if I can prove that I have fruit in my life, then I can be his disciple. And if I can be his disciple, then one day I can die and go to heaven and, and have eternal bliss with God, all those kinds of things. And yet again, that is totally backwards to what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, again, I said this already, don't clean up your life so that you can come to Jesus. He says, come to Jesus so that I can clean up your life. That's the orientation that we need to have. Are you broken? Are you sinful? Are you feeling far from God? Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. He says, join the club. Every single person who is a part of a church needs to recognize that their orientation into the life of the body of Christ is an acknowledgement that they are broken, sinful people. And apart from God, they can do nothing. I mean, that's, that's what gives us the gateway, pun intended, into the church. That we recognize on the front end that we are broken, sinful people. So Jesus, he says, if you abide in my love, then, then you'll be able to obey my commands. Then you will be able to produce good fruit. Only, only if you are abiding in me, remaining in me, if I inhabit you. You know, there was a, a teacher by the name of Billy Strackham. And uh, he was trying to highlight this principle to some of the students, the kids in his classroom. And I just love the way that he highlighted this, and I want to share it with you. So he had a Bible, and he laid it down, and then he took a white glove from his back pocket, 
and he put it on top of his Bible. And he shared with all of his students, he said, this little glove right here is a remarkably talented glove, an incredibly talented glove. He told all of his students that this glove right here has the power to lift up this Bible. And all the kids were like, oh, no, no way. I don't believe it. Prove it. He said, all right, all right. So I learned how to do this. So if kids, if you're watching, I need a little bit of crowd participation, all right? I, I need you to help me. So when I tell you to do it, what you need to do is say, glove, pick up the Bible. Can you help me with that? Say, glove, pick up the Bible. All right. So I'm going to count down from three. And then we're going to say the words. And then the glove is going to pick up the Bible. You ready for it? Three, two, one. Glove, pick up the Bible. That's awkward. Okay, hold on, hold on. What? All right, so the glove tells me that we didn't say it loud enough. This being Father's Day weekend, uh, especially kids, if you're sitting with your dad, I know your dad, what he really wants is for you to shout as loud as you can, glove, pick up the Bible. All right, that, that's, that's what he really wants for Father's Day. So could you help with that? We need to say it so loud that everyone in the Fraser Valley hears us. All right, so we're going to say it a second time. Here we go. Three, two, one. Glove, pick up the Bible. Hmm. Okay, hold on. What? All right, so what the glove is telling me is that the majority of kids are, are doing this, but, but parents and adults who are watching on their own, they're not doing this. And so what he has said is that in the, in the spirit of camaraderie, we all need to say this together. So we're going to do it a third and final time. You ready for this? Here we go. Say it with enthusiasm. Three, two, one. Glove, pick up the Bible. Whoa, what do you know, kids? The glove is able to pick up the Bible. And when Billy Strackham did this, he had a kid in the front row who said, what do you think, I'm dumb? That's not the glove, it's the hand inside the glove. And Billy Strackham said, exactly. If you abide in me and I in you, I will produce good fruit in you. Those are the words of Jesus. And may I be so bold as to say that oftentimes we overestimate what we can do apart from Christ and we underestimate what we can do in and through Jesus Christ. I mean, when it comes to the words of Jesus where he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Do we actually believe in that? Like, I spent this past week and I reviewed the Greek language and what it means here. When Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you know what that means? Do you know what that Greek word nothing means? It means nothing. And yet, we, do we actually believe that? Do we believe that apart from Jesus, I can do nothing? We might say, I, I can't do the really important things. I can't build up the church. I can't cause someone to love Jesus. I can't be perfect. I can't achieve salvation. But there's lots of things that I can do on my own, right? And yet Jesus, he has the audacity to say, apart from me, you can do nothing. But then, what does he say in verse 7? Look at this, equally remarkable. In verse 7, he says, "You, If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that apart from Christ, you can do nothing? And that if you are in Christ and you have in mind the things of Christ, you can ask whatever you wish. And because the Holy Spirit has taken residence in you, you will have the power through the Spirit to receive that gift. Do you believe in that? I think most of us, we give lip service to this. 
but it's really hard to believe, isn't it? But when it comes to Scripture, we have one of two options. We can either reject it, or we can be crazy enough to believe it. Which one is it? And you know, I I think we can take this analogy a little bit further. Um, You know, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, he says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And in association to what Jesus is saying here is that if we are in Christ, if we abide in Christ, then then we can produce real good fruit that the Holy Spirit has taken residence within us. Do Do we actually believe that? That the same Holy Spirit who knit you together in your mother's womb, the same Holy Spirit who put the sun and the moon and the stars and their vast array and all of creation and set it into motion, the same Holy Spirit that fell upon the apostles lives in you. And that you can do mighty things on account of the Holy Spirit living in you. Do you believe in that? So let's just take this analogy one final time here. And you see here that that I I brought along one of my kids' T-Rexes. And for the sake of the analogy, we have to think that this guy right here is a stand-in for sin and brokenness and darkness and the power of uh, Satan and his minions and, and all of those things because we believe, as Scripture says, that our battle is not against flesh and blood but against the principalities and powers of this dark age. And so this little dinosaur, he represents all those things. And on the other side here, we have this little glove and this represents me and you before Jesus, before we abided in Jesus. Let's just call this glove Jim Bob apart from the Holy Spirit. All right, so I need your help once again. We're going to have this boxing match that's going to occur. And so in a moment, I need you to join me in saying three, two, one, fight, and then we're going to watch the brawl. All right, you ready for it? Let's say it together. Three, two, one, fight. Doesn't stand a chance. Hooray, little dinosaur arms. Apart from me, you can do nothing, right? That's John chapter 15, verse 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He doesn't stand a chance. And yet, what we also believe is that when we step over the line to follow Jesus, we are filled with the Holy Spirit's power. And so, we're going to do a second round. And when Satan looks at Jim Bob, he says he looks a little bit different this time, but still the same schlub I beat up last time. And so together, again, we say, three, two, one, fight. Whoa, I just hit something. Doesn't stand a chance. If you abide in me and I in you, I will produce good fruit in you. Those are the words of Jesus. That's what Jesus communicates to each and every one of us. And so what Jesus says to you and to me, he says, are you tired? Are you weary? Are you tired of carrying things in your own strength? Then why don't you come to me? Let me clean you up. Let me inhabit you and care for you and allow you to experience immeasurable joy. I love what Jesus says in verse 11, and and then we're going to close. He says this in verse 11, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be 
complete. See, what Jesus is talking about here is he's not talking about happiness that is based on external circumstances, that you might be having a great day, you're driving along, listening to the Christian radio, and then there's someone in the fast lane driving like 60 kilometers an hour, and you're frustrated with them. It's like, oh, shoot, I I need to embody the fruit of the Spirit, and you get mad, or you have a, a really negative experience at work or at home, and on account of that, you just lose your joy. No, Jesus is talking about this type of joy that extends beyond human understanding, this joy that we can have right here, right now, not something that we can experience in the future one day when, when all of sin is done away with, but you can have it right now on, a, on account of Christ taking residence inside of you. You see, something that is highlighted in the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 60, I, I love what this says. It says, though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against God, even though, nevertheless, what, what is highlighted next is that God grants and credits to me perfect righteousness, holiness, and satisfaction in God so that when God the Father looks at me, he sees the work of Jesus. And so again, this is what I want to say to you. Are you tired? Are you weary? Then come to Jesus. Allow him to inhabit you. Allow him to fill you with immeasurable joy. Jesus says to you, I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, I will produce good fruit in you. I hope that you would experience that immeasurable joy that Jesus is giving to you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, We thank you for your son Jesus and for the words that he says in highlighting to us who he is and that it is the desire of your heart that you would inhabit us, that you would change us from the inside out, that you would do the good work of pruning us so that we can grow in Christ-likeness, that we would be able to uh, encounter your presence, that it wouldn't simply be something that we would experience once, but each and every moment of each and every day, that, that we would have this incredible joy and account of experiencing the presence of God. And when we experience that presence, that you also give us your power to bring about good fruit, kingdom fruit, that we can be agents of change in a dark and broken world on account of the good work that you're doing in us. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us that vision And if there are people who are watching today who don't know you, I ask, Lord, that you would pierce their hearts, that they would not only hear about you, but they would see you for who you truly are and that you would do a good work in them. And so we ask that you would go before us in the Spirit's power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy Father's Day, everybody. Have a great week.